I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey guys, welcome to And The Writer Is. I'm your host, Ross Golan. I've written with hundreds of artists and writers over the years, and my favorite part of each session is the first hour when we catch up about life, the industry, politics, composition, whatever. So this is a journey of learning why people write songs, how people write songs, and most importantly, who the people are who write the songs. I'm producing this with The Great Joe London, Big Deal Music Publishing, and Mega House Music Management. If you want to listen to the songs we discuss in this podcast, follow us on our socials, Find out about special live events or buy that merch, a.k.a. that hat I always wear. Go to our website, www.andthewriteris.com. Welcome to And The Update Is. I am your host, Paige McDonald, and this is your weekly music industry update. Empire just paid a $1 million advance in Bitcoin to the Atlanta-based rapper and entrepreneur Moneyman. InGrooves has expanded into India and appointed Amit Sharma as country manager for the market. Catchpoint rights partners and M3 Music have created a pack to source Latin music catalog acquisition opportunities. Downtown Music Services have announced a series of U.S. senior promotions. Dave Holly has launched a music industry podcast called Gigami. The British production company Marv and Warner Music Group have announced the launch of new label Marv Music. Warner Chapel Music has entered into a worldwide co-publishing agreement with Cardi B. The deal covers future works as well as recent releases including Rumors. Cobalt has signed the singer, songwriter and rapper Young Thug to a global publishing deal. The digital music distributor TuneCore has partnered with Twitch to launch the service's new artist incubator program, The Collective. The program is designed to empower artists. 10K Projects has launched 10K Ventures powered by Playwork, an initiative to back early stage founders that integrate within the music ecosystem. The four-time Grammy-winning U.S. rapper, singer, producer, and drummer Anderson Pack has signed with music licensing company PPL. The video-making app TagMix has secured a licensing agreement with Warner Music Group. The New York-based indie record label Fader Label has launched a new management division called Fader Management. Universal Music Publishing Group has promoted Taylor Testa to Vice President A&R. Circuit has inked a global deal with Universal Music Publishing Group. Spotify is set to acquire audiobook platform Findaway. The Walters have signed with Warner Records following reunion. Artist Blue to Tiger has signed with Capital. 
Andrew Jocelyn is the new co-chair of Recording Academy's National Advocacy Committee. A big thank you to Haley Evans of Mega House for gathering today's news. Now stay tuned for a new episode of And the Writer Is. Welcome to And The Writer Is. I am your host, Ross Golan. Today's publishing icon is the founder and CEO of Reservoir Media, the first independent music company to go public in the United States. Reservoir's publishing catalog includes historic pieces written and performed by greats like Billy Strayhorn, Hoagie Carmichael, and John Denver, contemporary classic catalogs of Sheryl Crow and Phanagram, and current award-winning hits performed by the likes of Lady Gaga, Camila Cabello, Bruno Mars, and Cardi B, along with scores created by award-winning composer Hans Zimmer, as heard in the motion pictures The Lion King, The Pirates of the Caribbean, Gladiator, The Dark Knight trilogy, and over 150 other titles. This Ivy League Iranian-Canadian is herself an accomplished pianist, because of course she is. Just another notch on the belt, of not just one of the coolest humans in the music business, but on earth. And the writer is Golnar Khosrowshahi. Thank you, Ross. How are you? I am lovely, and I'm excited to have you on here. I am honored to be on here. I remember when you asked me, or you wrote you back, and I said I thought you'd never ask. <laughs> exactly. I mean, look, one of the coolest things about you uh, is that you're really supportive of a lot of songwriters that aren't necessarily your songwriters. I feel like people have a really good relationship with you, um, whether they're your writer or not. It feels like in an industry where people are really competitive and people are often really aggressive, why, um, you know, why do some nice people win? Um, I think it's an interesting business in that we, as a, as a music company, we are both competing and collaborating with our competitors every day, right? So we're issuing licenses together, but we're competing with them to sign a songwriter or to buy something or, you know, do whatever. Um, so in that sense, the business is pretty commingled. For us, it's really not a deliberate act of being nice. You're going to cross paths with people all the time, every day. Our writers are going to be in the room with other writers who are not signed to Reservoir. Our job, our duty to our writers is to make sure that they have the best situation possible in these collaborations. And I think being professional and having a good relationship with everybody is really fulfilling that commitment. Um, people come in and out of your lives all the time, and uh, you never know who who's going to be signed to your roster tomorrow. Yeah, I think that's the that right there is probably the most um, the best advice. I think a lot of people are so short sighted when they're dealing with whatever negotiations that's in front of them right now that they 
they sometimes miss opportunities that are 10 years down the line just because they weren't, um, they were so focused on trying to get the best thing just for the moment. Yeah. Did you, like, I, I want to go and tell your story because you have a really unique story for a number of reasons, but let's take it all the way to your childhood. Are you, were you born in Tehran? I was. So what is, you know, when people think of the uh, Iranian government now, they think of something very different than the Tehran you grew up in. Describe what Tehran is where you, when you're a child, what it looked like to you. So I left when I was six. Um, I think yeah, I have a lot of memories, but my memories are certainly uh, distorted as they would be um, in the mind of a six-year-old. Um, the Tehran that I grew up in obviously was under, Iran was under a very different regime. The country was on a very different path politically, uh, economically, socially than, than it's on today and has been for the past uh, 40 years or so. Um, I have incredible memories of growing up there, mostly because I grew up in a chocolate factory. And uh, my father was in the uh, food and pharmaceutical business, and um, uh, that company manufactured uh, a lot of different brands of candy and cereal, and, you know, we made Kit Kat bars. Um, so I... Literally, you... Like literally made Kit Kat bars or similar <laughs> no, things? No, no, actually Kit-Kat made Kit Kat bars. <laughs> so it, it, my, this is weird because my my grandfather ran a, a candy company in Chicago. My dad always talked about growing up in a candy factory. Uh, that is, uh, it, to me, it's just Willy Wonka. It, it was. It really me. was. And my father worked... I mean, you know, I suppose had he had the technology, he would have worked seven days a week like he does now. But back then, he actually went to the office six days a week. Um, so I I would go on, on Saturdays. On the weekend day, I would go. And um, it was great. It was an absolute great time. Um, uh, you know, my brother and I have very, very fond memories of, uh, growing up there and uh, just an incredible childhood. We were fortunate in that we were multilingual. We were fortunate in that we could, um, we had the ability to leave when we did um, and have a pretty smooth transition uh, when we moved to London. What, uh, but what languages besides Farsi and English did you speak? French and Italian. I didn't speak Italian then. Um, but I went to an international school, so I was already fluent in English, um, and, uh, and almost fluent in French, uh, and Italian I learned subsequent. What kind of music did you grow up with? Did you grow up with, um, you know, music from each of those regions? Cause they're all so, so different. There's even a different scale, you know, 16 notes and a lot of music out of the Middle East. The main instruments are different, you know, what, but I know you were a piano player. What did you listen to and what did you play growing up? So my mother was 21 when I was born 
and very much on the cutting edge of all culture. Um, so there was a lot of Beatles and doors and you know, <laughs> that was what was happening in my house. <laughs> so, and I think she, she still has her, her record collection. Um, so we really did grow up with her musical taste. Uh, and given how young she was, um, her musical taste would have been completely normal for, you know, in, for somebody that age and, 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 and our age. Um, I started playing piano when I was probably four, not very seriously. Um, and I was only playing classical music. Uh, and then I played with a little more discipline in London. Um, and I had a teacher in North London, Mrs. Ginsburg, who, again, I'm sure it's a distorted childhood memory. It seemed like she was 80 years old or 90 years old then. Um, but, you know, she continued to teach for another 20 years after I left her. Um, so I, I studied with her a couple times a week. Uh, but she got me actually into the Royal Academy in the UK. Uh, and that's when I really started playing. And that program is a very disciplined uh, classical training that has both practical, oral, um, and history elements to it. Um, it's quite a terrifying process. Uh, you, you take exams. I mean, you take exams in front of a panel of judges in very large halls, and uh, I think I was seven or eight the first one I took. Um, so it's, it's, some, it's very intense training. Being a young child who's living in London, but had already had the experience you had growing up in Iran and then with everything that had gone on with the revolution, how did that affect your childhood in London? Did it? It absolutely did. I mean, listen, we we left Iran uh, on a, I can't even remember what day a week, but, you know, in the middle of November, early November. So in the middle of the school year, uh, we had a home to go to. We, we spoke the language. So from that perspective, it was a very seamless transition especially as you would compare it to other people who were displaced, did not have a home to go to. Language was an issue. Um, but it's difficult. It's difficult as a six, seven-year-old to integrate into a school community and uh, come in in November and uh, be the child who's from the country uh, about which the news is plastered every single day on the paper uh, where dictators are taking over regimes. And um, yeah. from that perspective, it was very difficult. When you're in London, it's not that long that you're in London before you move to Canada. Why did you, why did your family relocate again to Canada? So it was really a, um, a move in so far as figuring out what's next from a business standpoint. Again, as I mentioned, my parents were very young. 
uh, and that was certainly not going to be um, my father's last uh, last business endeavor. Uh, so he was really looking at where he would have the best opportunities and um, where to set up the the best sort of infrastructure for the future of his family. Um, and Canada was uh, was an interesting place. When you went to undergrad, because you went to uh, you went to undergrad, right, at Bryn Mawr, is that what it is? Yes, yes. Okay, did you study piano there? Were you studying music, or at that point had you already started thinking of studying something outside of being a performer? So I studied. So I studied all the way through high school. I went through those terrorizing exams. Um, they just got more and more. Um, difficult insofar as the undertaking goes. So, you know, by the time you get to the end of the course, you actually have to study the history of music and you have to, you know, do, do all of that, uh, that testing as well. Um, and, uh, I got to school, uh, and I was also a competitive tennis player at the time. And I kind of, I really wanted to put my tennis racket inside the piano bench and never look at either item again. <laughs> Was it because there's a? I think there's a common thread um, amongst accomplished kids that they tend to do what they're good at, not necessarily something they love. You know, when did you realize that being a competitive tennis player and pianist must be it must have been impossible to you know to really get an gauge on what you know, what you're good at versus what you love. I mean, what did you love at that point? Why would you want to give up either of them? I I did love both, but they are both... Listen, I, I, I was never going to be a concert pianist. I studied with a, hus- a Russian husband and wife um, couple. And I would say I was the only student who either didn't end up or didn't have aspirations to end up on the stage. Uh, in fact, with them, they didn't—they didn't even understand that somebody wouldn't have the aspiration to want to be on stage. That's why you would study with them. They were sort of master class type instructors, um, and that required—I mean—to be in that scenario just required hours and hours of training. So both of the things that I was pursuing at a high level, I was never going to be the very best at, which meant that I had to do each of them for several hours a day. Um, and I knew I wasn't going to be the very best at them. Uh, but I also grew up in an environment where, you know, that, that uh, requirement to excel at a certain level was um, very much a given. I feel like people who are successful in any business are never the best at them. You know, the people who are often the best at any of those professions, you know, they're unable, those are the same people who are often unable to communicate, you know, may have different skill sets. They may not be able to run a business. They may not be able to do a lot of things. I would imagine that, you know, that there are, I know there are better songwriters than me who are often less successful. I'm sure that there are people who are really very talented people in a lot of businesses who just don't have the skill set to succeed. 
You know, like because yes. I think that, that yeah, is, but look at you. You're the Renaissance man. You're the advocate. <laughs> you're the songwriter. I mean, you're the musical producer. I mean, it's uh, it's you're excelling in in every single one of those pathways. Yeah, but I don't. You know, well, I guess it's the you know the the idea of practicing piano and practicing tennis and practicing and doing it like that is what makes you great, not necessarily the skill set of somebody who may have the talent to be great, but may not have the uh, focus to practice, may not have the time management to do multiple things, may not have the ability to, they may not be the best at life, but they might be really, right. they may have the uh, the dexterity to be a good piano player. That doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to be successful the way that you've been successful. When you left, you know, after high school, you go to college and you, you do kind of put the racket in the piano bench. And going to college, what did you study? I studied political science. Um, I took a lot of math. Um, but there was never a debate that I was going to pursue music from a practical standpoint. Um, was there ever a, uh, another standpoint that you'd pursue music? I mean, at that point, well, you at didn't the know time, at the time, there was never a consideration. I didn't even know that. Okay, I'm not going to be on the stage, but there's a business opportunity here. Where um, did you learn that? At you went and got your MBA from Columbia, which is, you know, it's Upper West Side in, in Manhattan. Uh, I imagine that, and I don't know this, but is that where you were first introduced to, you know, the entertainment industry as an industry? So no, because before that, I was working in advertising, um, and I was working on some pretty big accounts that recruited celebrity talent. Um, did a lot of music licensing for, uh, you know, big licensing, big songs and a very different, obviously different environment, sync environment than, than today. Um, so I was a little bit on the fringe of that, uh, of, of that business, um, or at least of the entertainment side of the business. Um, and then when I was at Columbia, I went and volunteered at, there was a, there used to be, I don't know if it's even still on, Verona Schuler used to have a conference called The Big Picture. And everybody would be there from, you know, Fox and all of the big media companies. So through volunteering at the conference, literally checking people in and getting them sort of to the right place at the Pierre Hotel, um, I ended up getting a job at Viacom that summer. Um, I actually... I mean, it wasn't that straightforward. I wrote every single day for, I think, a month. I wrote to Matt Blank, who was president of Showtime at the time, every single day. till finally his assistant called me and said, okay, you need to stop writing him. Can you come in and have an interview? You would write an email to that person? No, I would a write letter? him. I would mail him a card every day as to why he needs to hire me for the summer. Why were you so determined for that job? I just I wanted to see what it's like there. 
it was uh, it was a really interesting place to be, whether it was Viacom or you know any of these other big media conglomerates. I happened to meet Matt at um, at that conference, and um, it was going to be three months. I wasn't going to be married to it, so I just I wanted to have that exposure and see what it was going to be like. Uh, I love the audacity people have. Um, when they when they're too young to have anything to lose, you exactly. know. I mean, there's no question that people make some brave decisions early on because, well, why not? And you know, I don't know why we lose that because that's what really gets you ahead. It, it's an amazing quality to be able to mail somebody a letter every day and and to not really care about the consequences. But when you think about it, there wouldn't be any consequences. Who's going to fault somebody for being, you know? Being persistent. I don't, yeah. I mean, when I started, you know, when I graduated from college, my first job was as a receptionist. And um, I had gotten, I had been introduced to uh, the founder of um, an advertising agency here in New York. And that was his job offer, was as a receptionist. Now, the agency happened to be owned by a French parent company, Havas Advertising, and my French skills came in very handy. So I had both receptionist duties and translation and, you know, all kinds of other things going on, which gave me exposure to to a whole bunch of things. But I remember when all my friends who were working at various banks and consulting companies and things like that from college, one day one of them calls me up and says, you know, there's always elevator ringing when I call you, are you a receptionist? Do you sit by the elevator? <laughs> I was like, no, I have no idea what you're talking about. Exactly, of course. <laughs> I don't I don't hear that. Anyway, I stayed in that job for two weeks and I got myself huh. out of there very quickly. Um, it, no, I didn't leave the company. I, I found something else to do within within the company where they needed help. But again, because because I asked. Right. Yeah, there's this fine, you know, you don't want to be complacent, but you don't want to be difficult, but you want to, you know, you want to be aggressive in your career, but in reality, you do have to learn some you know, basics in any business. And part of you know, if you're going to work in publishing, it sure makes sense to work in licensing on the advertising side. So there's a lot of logic in that. And going and working over at Showtime, go back to that. Once you start working in that environment, um, keep going with the story from there. So I had already worked at the agency for a couple of years. The agency had absolutely no rules. You, If you were working hard and you were contributing, there was nothing stopping you. And we worked, I mean, we must have been working 16-hour days. Uh, but it was with the most fantastic group of people. Um, and so it was this really dynamic, young environment, um, a lot of rule breakers and just an inspiring place to be. I went to Showtime. Their office was on Paramount's office. Uh, Viacom's office was on 55th and 7th. And very corporate and very low energy, 
Um, and I was working in business development group and one our tasks were basically to uh, look at different ways in which um, we could model out and create scenarios for international channel opportunities that would be combining, say, Nick and, you know, another one of their properties and you know, modeling that out essentially for, for international territories. Um, it was a really different environment and it showed me while, while the prospect of working there seemed very glamorous, it showed me what was important to me which was to be in a really high energy place with just great people around. Yeah. Yeah. You need that. I think this is one of the eras that's a little confusing because on some level you can be around a lot of high energy people, but you're doing it over the internet versus when you're being around a lot of high energy people, you mean physically actually around a lot of people who are hustling around. Is that important to still, you know, in, in an era that we're moving into where people are probably not going to go to an office five days a week, how do you maintain that kind of energy? This is skipping forward, but I'm just asking. Well, I mean, I've been in my office since June. By June, I mean June of 2020. Um, and we've had, we've had our core group here um, who's been working on a, on a few big things that we've done in the past year. This week, we are topping 15 people now in the office. And you can see a difference. You can certainly see a difference. We'll never go back to five days a week, for sure. But I do think that there is value in setting and imparting culture and creating a sense of team and teamwork and that just comes from being physically with one another, grabbing a cup of coffee, going and having lunch, uh, and just being together for a few hours a week. Uh, so I do. I, I don't think it's going to. You know, we're we're not going back to where we were, but um, there's value in getting some of that back. I agree with that. Um, I want to go to the beginning of Reservoir because there's a great story just with the publishing company as a whole. But one, why does somebody start a publishing company? And two, in, in that time, <laughs> in that time, it's 2007, which is the maybe in a way like the tail end slash peak of MP3s. It's certainly in a major part of piracy still. And, you know, rock music is kind of dead at this point. It's really difficult to figure out, you know, there, there are a few people kind of controlling radio. Um, it's a really difficult time and a complicated time to start. Now everybody wants a publishing company, but in 2007, that's a really bad time to start it. And I know that you were, you know, you founded it in New York. And you did it with a, a family office. One, explain to people what a family office is. Explain why you would start a publishing company and what the scenario is that really created, you know, this company. Sure. Um, so I started, I guess, in 2006 or so, I started doing diligence on how people were creating IP and monetizing that IP. Um, 
obviously I was familiar with the music side. I still had a lot to learn. Uh, but I looked at book publishing. I looked at film and TV assets. I met with people who were already doing that on the film and TV side. Um, and settled on music because uh, it was just, it was attractive for a number of different reasons. There was, it was the size of the market. Uh, the fact, and with the irony of it all, the fact that it was regulated as far as royalty rates go, you kind of knew how, you know, what things were worth, the things that, that were stomping our feet about now versus uh, back then. Um, with film and TV, everybody's different. You don't really have a, a way to know um, how how somebody's IP or interest, um, how to value that. So um, settled on music and just kept getting educated about it. I think that... Did someone had, keep, are you learning, sorry to interrupt, but are you learning that from from... You know, settling on that, doing diligence on which IP to invest in or to, uh, you know, invest your career into. I would assume that's sort of what, you know, what you're talking about. But who's who's even explaining to you? Who's your teacher? Who's your mentor in in any of this? So, I mean, I would just I would read. I would read. Um, you know. Like this business of music, <laughs> those books, you know, that there's that whole sort of category, cadre of books. Um, and then I would get introduced to people along the way. So, for instance, I went and I met with the folks at Content Partners in LA. Um, I was introduced to Larry Mistel very, very early on. Um, and you know, I'd talk to one person and they would introduce me to two other people. And, um, you know, we got introduced to a couple of lawyers. Now they were more in the Broadway field. So, uh, you know, I met with them. I collected some information there. But it was a, it wasn't some kind of a formal education. And in response to, you know, the part of the question that you said, why would anybody do this at that time? I have to say, had I been more educated and had more educated, meaning, you know, no, just really understanding how bad things were in the music business at that time, um, probably wouldn't have gone down this road. Uh, so it was a little bit of, naivete and blindness that uh, put put us in this decision. Now, obviously, it wasn't just my decision. Um, the business was capitalized uh, by our parent company. Our parent company has a singular controlling shareholder who's my father. Um, so that is my first phone call every morning. Mm, uh, that is who nice. I continue to report to. He is hands down uh, the best boss in the world and uh, the most challenging, the most demanding. So uh, I have to say that that has been one of the most uh, rewarding and precious uh, uh, pieces of this 14-year uh, history for me has been to learn from him and be challenged by him and just to have that example. What an amazing opportunity to get to talk to him every every day every morning every morning and he's on the west coast how do 5 you, a.m <laughs> um 
I should call him and get coffee. That's that's my wake up time. What? Um, how do how do you deal with times that are difficult? Is in that environment? Is does he challenge you, or is he empathetic? What what's his personality like when you know when things are tough and when things are good? Is he you know what's his personality like? Um. You know, he is the kindest person you will ever meet. Uh, but business is business, and deliverables are deliverables. And um, so those metrics do not change or shift because I am his daughter, and they don't change or shift uh, for any emotional reasons around the business. Um, we definitely had you know, I would say a challenging, challenging is an understatement first five, six, seven years. Um, and that was really because, first of all, you have to build some scale to get anywhere in this business. Uh, and second, just because of the industry dynamics uh, and what was happening as far as the decay went, um, I would say the first five years that we were in this business, we were still looking at declining uh, annual sales just in the overall music, music business. So from that perspective, the question always was, why are we in this business to begin with? <laughs> How do you answer that? Um, well, I got to tell you, I don't really remember how we got through it, but I think that it was just along the way, there was more and more compelling evidence that if we stayed the course and just continued our commitment to the very same and basic investment principles there was some glimmer of hope, some indication that this thing is going to turn around, that streaming is going to stay, that piracy is going to wane, you know, writers are going to start getting compensated. There's actually going to be a compensation model. Um, all of those things didn't really converge as indicators at the same time. Uh, and I think that that once we collected morsels of that along the way, it became pretty compelling that investing more money in the business and continuing to build scale may help us. Of course, now you look back on those days where you were taking a deep breath when you were paying five or seven times multiple on a catalog um, compared to what's happening today. Well, how much of building a company, a publishing company, is about, right now it feels like it's all about catalogs and not necessarily about writer development, and yet writer development is really how you're going to create catalogs at a discount. You know, um, How much of the growth of Reservoir is due to the writers versus the due to acquisitions? So we, I mean, let me give you some, some touch points first. Um, we've spent, well, 
as of this morning, we have spent. You've seen our news from this morning. Right? Oh, I didn't see it. No, I went. I went to the Huntington Gardens and I sat outside. What is, what's the news from this morning? Oh, we acquired Tommy Boy this morning. Wow! Congratulations. Thank you. Um, okay, so as of this morning, we spent six hundred million dollars acquiring assets. Um, now as, let's go to yesterday's numbers because that's easier. So, say as of yesterday. We've spent four hundred million acquiring assets, one hundred million signing talent. Um, we didn't really get into the writer roster business until we signed Nate Hills, Danger, who you know, um, and that was in. I mean, we early early two thousand. I guess two thousand eleven ish, two thousand eleven, two thousand twelve. Um, and the reason we didn't get into that business was first of all, because I was terrified, uh, very different risk profile. We didn't have any creative services. So signing writers and not having any creative services to actually, uh, you know, manage that relationship was going to be a problem. Um, and it seemed very risky. Uh, so since then, we've taken a really measured approach insofar as how we populate the roster. We've brought in, I think, an incredible creative team with Faith Newman here in New York, Annette Barrett in London, and the rest of the team there, Donna Kassane in L.A. Um, and as we have ramped up our capabilities then that has empowered them to populate the roster. Um, it's, it's an exciting part of our business. It is, you know, it's, we have so much fun in that part of our business. I think that the relationships we have um, with our writers are the most important relationships that we have in our business. We really, we really subscribe to the idea that we are investing in people we are investing in people whose expertise happens to be to make music, which means that people are going to have ups and downs and they're going to be subject to life. And sometimes that means people don't work for a year. And sometimes that means they work every day for a year. Um, but we are not in business with our writers for a short term basis. Our Donna and I talk about this a lot where our idea of success in that part of our business is that nobody ever wants to leave us. Um, and I think that's when, that's when you've delivered. That's when you have a partnership with a writer who is happy with his or her career. And your job is to play a part in that. Obviously we've interviewed some writers that have been signed to you guys and, you know, watching what's happened with Ali Tamposi in the last, um, you know, I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. 
Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Five years or so has been something where you know it's a, it's a, a almost a Carol King kind of moment. It's really being at the the heart of that when you know being a part of um, watching writers go from you know one hit to lots of hits. Um, I still think that's probably the most exciting thing that you can find as a publisher. You know, I I don't know if. It's not one song here or there. It's watching it one career really blow up. And uh, you've had a few of these. Uh, do you think that having, um, you know, having writers that are that successful, does that set a bar for your other writers? Does it set the bar for your, you know, how does it change the dynamic of a publishing company when you're watching? certain writers have that kind of success? So I think about that a lot. And one of the things I think about, and I think it's important to remind ourselves about, is that all, you know, all the writers have different objectives. Uh, and we have a lot of writers in very different lanes, in very different niches, and... So they're not necessarily, you know, Ali, Ali is going down one road and it's fantastic and we couldn't be happier for her. Um, but that doesn't mean all the other writers on the Reservoir roster want that path, that trajectory. Um, I think that... Just to give an idea of some of the others, you know, you know Offset and 2 chains, you know, Young thug. They, these are people who are not at all like Allie. No. You know, I mean, they, it's it's really an impressive roster that is diverse. Um, I find it as a publisher, I find it sometimes difficult to branch out, not because of me not wanting to, but because um, you know. Sometimes you go where doors are open and you keep walking through. There's a huge difference between Hans Zimmer and Two Chains. Um, there's a big the difference. Bank? Yeah, exactly. But you know, it's most publishers aren't able to stretch that wide if they're not already Warner Chapel or they're not already Universal or Sony. Why is but, it, I mean, look, we've got Ben Harper on the roster. We've got yeah. Ben Sonny on the roster. They're completely different. But to how these do people. these people, you know, these people can sign publishing deals in Absolutely. different places? Why do they go to Reservoir? I think it really has to do with the people. I mean, you have to have the. You have to have the flexibility and the skill and the creative services to deliver. Um, we happen to have that, that flexibility and the sort of diversity in our personnel to provide those services. Uh, Donna Kassane can equally work with 
Ben Harper as she can with Ali Tamposi. Uh, and that's a unique skill set to have. Um, Annette Barrett works with Jamie Hartman, but she's also working with Nitin Sani. Now, the rest of the team certainly supports that, but those are two entirely different lanes. And I think that comes from experience. And that really, it goes back to what I was saying before, it comes to, it comes from this understanding that these are all different individuals with different goals and different lanes, different kinds of music. Um, and it's our job to really help them realize what that creative vision is that they have for themselves. We can't just keep doing the same thing over and over again. I love origin stories. And so I want to go back a little bit to the beginning of Reservoir and it is 2007. It's one thing when you're like, okay, we've got a little funding. Let's see what happens. How did you start a publishing company? Who did you start with as far as what, what is the process for you? So we, it's really so unglamorous. Um, we took an office. We, we've, we've always had our office in New York within a five square block radius. Uh, down in uh, publishing, but printing press neighborhood down in Hudson and Merrick and that area. Um, so we took an office um, and the first acquisitions that we did in that first year were the catalogs of uh, John Rich, Kenny Alfin, Mickey McGahee and Bruce Roberts. Uh, so interesting mix. Um, we learned a lot. I mean, Bruce is a dear friend now. Continues we, you know, continues to be at Reservoir and uh, has become one of our biggest champions and, and really a, a great friend. Uh, I, all those relationships are, are standing today, but um, it was. It was a big learning experience that first year, for sure. It was learning around the infrastructure we had to set up. Um, luckily, I met Rel May Cinco. De, well, I guess I met him earlier than May. He started on Cinco de Mayo in two thousand eight. Uh, that's how I remember his work, his work anniversary. Um, so he brought in a whole know how on setting up the administration infrastructure and. Um, our foreign collections and, you know, just putting all of the pieces in place and has obviously grown with the company and now is our president and COO. Um, but that's really how we got started. We just, we started buying assets. When did you feel like you were a competitor? I know, I know that there are a lot of, um, there are a lot of independent publishers and that do very different things. Um, and there are some who have who've acquired a lot of catalogs, but aren't really competitors. They're more just they've acquired catalogs, but they don't necessarily feel like they're part of the publishing community. When did you feel when you know that you were a member of the community? I think I mean I don't know how to put an exact date on it. We announce a deal like we did today with Tommy Boy, and I sort of breathe a sigh of relief, and I and I say, okay, 
I, I might say, you know, now we're really a part of the community. And that'll last for a few hours. <laughs> and then, and then, you know, we'll be overlooked for something or we won't get a phone call about something or whatever. It's not, you know, it happens all the time. And so I feel like then we're scurrying along again to make sure that we are a part of the community. So I think that's something that I'm always striving for because it is an insulated industry. Everybody does know each other. It is very much a relationship-driven business and uh, breaking into that was not was not easy. Um, I did so, I suppose, somewhat in the same way as I was when I was writing the guy from Viacom every day, which was just, you know, we're here, we're going to invest in this business. So um, that's, that's sort of the way it was for us. Um, I think when... I joined the NMPA board. That really, um, that was a pivotal moment. Um, uh, but even you know when we when we bought TVT, that was a that was our first catalog that we bought. That was just so high quality, so such a known brand with so many known artists and songs and songwriters. Again, at that point, I felt okay. Now we're a part of the community, but with each step you get used to it and then you want to do something else that makes you more entrenched. Yeah, I have a few questions to jump off this, but real quick about Tommy Boy. I mean, there's one thing to um uh, you know, I, I don't know exactly if hypnosis and if primary wave are in the business of buying a lot of masters. Um but Tommy Boy's not uh you know, that's a record label. Yes. Uh, what can you provide in that service and, you know, to get involved in record, you know, in the masters and stuff that feels like that's out of the core business or is it all just part of the same thing? So we, we bought Chrysalis Records in June of 2019. Um, So we have this operation over there headed by, Jeremy LaSalle's and Robin Miller, who have um, certainly become uh, two of the highlights of my working relationships over the past uh, few years. Um, And the idea was always to expand on that part of our business. You know, we have this infrastructure, we have this incredible know-how, this legendary catalog, this legendary label with Chrysalis, and what better marriage to happen there than with Chrysalis and Tommy Boy and those all under the same, same roof. Um, We also strategically a few years ago, really committed to being a music company Um, that meant going down the road with Chrysalis. I mean, before that really Philly groove was our only sort of labeled, not of any substantive size. Um, and that meant that we had management services, we had a label, we had publishing, uh, we went down this road with our emerging markets practice when we um, took a position in Paparabia last year. So this is all part of a larger strategy to be a music company. Yeah, it, it makes sense. This is where when you, you said a jack-of-all-trades thing, I think that they're all really, everything's really connected and the more you draw... You know, the more you anchor things with each other, 
I guess thinking of it more as a rising tide versus a lowering tide. But you know, it makes sense. It, it diversifies the company, and the whole business is growing. So why not tap into that? One of you know, I'm on the board of NMPA as well, and one of the comments I get from a lot of writers is that they feel like publishers are divided often because the parent companies own both publishing and masters. Um, that is not true. I think that that not. I, I think that that is a a low hanging fruit, and not understanding that a lot of executives have their um, their bonus structure t- attached to their company's success. They're not in the business of making some other company underneath the same umbrella successful. Um, but in in the case of Reservoir, you know. You're one of the biggest advocates for songwriters and having, having, owning masters and owning management parts of Reservoir Media. How does that affect your um, advocacy for songwriters? Does it enhance or does it hurt? I mean, so there's been no situation has arisen where. I have at all felt conflicted or that I have to concede or compromise on a position I might normally take um, in that context of advocacy for a songwriter. Uh, So I just don't think we're big enough for that to happen, um, that scenario. Uh, We will, I think, you know, does it hurt it or does it help it? It helps it in that we have a lot of exposure and firsthand experience to understand what the issues are and what the business issues are across the board. So that's always great. Um, I don't think our advocacy for songwriters will ever uh, wane because we've decided we're a record label now and that's our priority. Um we will, you know, we're going to continue to grow that part of our business. We're going to continue to grow our roster. Uh, and we're going to continue to advocate for our songwriters. And if we can do more advocacy, we certainly will. Um, and that's really, that has progressed as the company has grown, as the roster has grown, as we have people with, you know, more visibility, um, as I, I, as our, as our own executives have had, have gained more visibility and, been able to participate on boards like the NMPA, then that's certainly given us a better platform. But I don't think that that's, I really don't think that's ever going to change. You're such a patient leader. I know from, you know, writers that are assigned to Reservoir and people who work at Reservoir, where did you learn to be so patient? On on the board when you speak, when you speak in, in an interview, you're very thoughtful uh, where did you learn the ability to be patient in an industry where everything is moving so quickly? Ross, when I was born, they nicknamed me the one who is always in a rush. Really? Which which is only one word in Persian. What is it? The word is, well, the word that they tell me is ajul, the one who is always in a rush. And they said that that's how I was born, too. My mom says that that's how I was born, that I was just in such a rush. You know, they went to the hospital. If they weren't even there, I would have been born in the car. Hmm. 
Um, and that from that day, I was always in a rush. So I've always been in a rush. Um, it's very kind of you to say I'm patient. Um, I, uh, you know, as far as being thoughtful goes, it's, um, you want to be thoughtful. You want to say the right things. You want to empower your people as a leader to make decisions and know that they are not, not under pressure for the wrong reasons. Uh, and, uh, I just think that's a really important component to effective leadership so that people can, can do their jobs and communicating that way is, um, is helpful. Being a female in the music business is also something that, um, has a different, a, a complicated reputation what is it like being a woman in the music business? Do you find that, you know, and, and as a boss in this business, you know, you, you have a diverse, um, you have diverse employees. Is it all, is that on purpose or, you know, is that all related to the same thing? I would say that, yes, it's on purpose, but not in the way that people think about on purpose. When people think about on purpose, insofar as any kind of diversity, equity, inclusion goes in the workplace, it is more around, you know, we interviewed 10 people for this job. We looked at this many who are like this and this many who are like this. So ours is on purpose, yes, but ours isn't on purpose because of rules we have set. Ours is on purpose because culturally that's just who we are. Um, and so we are going to look at all kinds of people who can join our company and be a part of the leadership team. And that's just been driven by our culture, which as a result means that it's all happened very organically. So we have this leadership team that is, is quite diverse um, across the board, whether uh, on any kind of sort of diversity metric that you would look at. Um, it makes me really happy to see that we have so many women in leadership positions. And uh, again, that's, that's happened very organically. Uh, but because the outlook here is such that we should be, we want to be, and, you know, we have to be a representation of what is, uh, what is real. Um, and so that's how we've grown. We've also, I mean, we've, I would say had maybe five or six people leave the company since 2007. Hmm. Um, well, so I have to shout out two of your employees because they, they each changed only my, two. Well, <laughs> two, two of them really changed my life, you know? Okay. Who? Well, I was about to, I was leaving ASCAP to go to BMI. And there was Mark Hutner, who's at ASCAP now, good friend yep. of ours. You know, he said, he introduced me to Dave Hoffman. Okay. Um, and David Hoffman just started working at Reservoir in the last year. Yes. Um, but he was one of those first publishers who connected me and he connected me with a guy named Jared Scharf who's now signed to me as a writer but is is one of the most brilliant songwriters. He was the guitarist for Saturday Night Live for 15 years. That was one of the first introductions any publisher made for me ever. You know, this I was 27 years old or something at the time. So, you know, 
I've remained in touch with him for a long time, but he's such a good person that I was really excited that, that he was um, a part of Reservoir and, and is now part of the family. But after Dave Hoffman, once I started writing with with these guys, Jared Sharf and I started writing songs a lot, and we started writing with Dre and Vidal. And Dre and Vidal's publisher at Universal took some meetings with me, and that's Donna Kassane. And Donna introduced me to a number of people in the business and was always so supportive. Both of those people I still keep in touch with on a regular basis. And it's not, I mean, it's, that's, that's more than a decade ago. These people right. are, were not, neither of them have ever been my publisher in, in a sense that I was signed to them, but both of them have opened a number of doors for me and they've both been just incredible people. And I can't name that many people that are as important to my career as those two. So I think that says a lot that you have both of them. So I just want to congratulate you on having two of those wonderful people along with the others. They just each deserve their own shout out. So I just want to do that. Thank you. There, I mean, it's, it's what you had asked about earlier. Having that generosity, regardless of whether you're having it for, you know, towards a client or not, just towards another person, um, has really worked for us, has worked for our people. And um, obviously David and Donna specifically, have. that's something they've been doing their entire careers. What can songwriters look forward to right now when it does feel like, you know, I don't want to get into like a pity party, but here we always, you know, we see obviously the inequity in streaming and the apathy from streaming companies we're nervous about, you know, record companies compensating writers in any specific way. The PROs really haven't been able to use what the Music Modernization Act has provided them, although we're really excited about the MLC and, and some of the other things that are changing. Give us some good news. What is what is if you're a songwriter right now or you're just starting out? And you're joining an industry where it seems like a lot of people are online complaining about not getting paid enough. What's some good news for songwriters right now? Um, so I think the good news can be split up in a couple of different buckets. The first is really just very specific legislative type things that are going on with CRV3 and um, you know, the, the sort of the remand process there and what's that going to look like when, when it's sorted out and then obviously the, the next CRB. Um, and I think that I'm optimistic insofar as how those will proceed um, in favor of songwriters. Obviously, I can't predict the future, but um, I think that we have an excellent group of people who are leading the charge on that and um, it's... Um, I'm hopeful that that will result in at least a uh, at least upholding the rates that were set back in 2018, and then looking forward to what further you know changes come about with the next CRB. So there's those types of things that that I'm optimistic about. But 
if I step back, the second bucket really is that there has never been more money, more high caliber people, more interest in this business than there is today. And without songwriters, and I think, you know, the, the people who it's important that the people who are sort of coming in or who are in our industry today really need to understand that without the songwriters and without advocating for the songwriters, um, they are jeopardizing a sort of success for all scenario. Um, and I think we do have that going for us. We have enough people who are, you know, delivering that message and, uh, people are buying it or believing it. People are being noisy about people, you know, in my position are being noisy about songwriter advocacy. And I just think that that will, that is a very, uh, promising position to be in. We're going to go to our next segment, which is a five for five. I'm going to name five things and, uh, I just want to, you know, hear what your thoughts are. Okay, it's like a test. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go all family here. Let's start with your cousin and CEO of Uber. Okay. Uh, I don't know anything about him, but that, like, what's with your family? Everyone's so successful. Let's go with Dara. Um. So what's? I mean, I'll answer it generally in the family context, and it's really not. The family, um, the Iranian diaspora, uh, is an ex- is a is a group of people who are extremely conscious of the value of education, and so, you know, they all left. They came to the West. They went to Europe. They went to the United States. A lot of them went to Texas. A lot of them went to California, New York, um, and this my generation. Uh, was really an immigrant generation who knew that without education, nothing else was going to fall into them into place for them. And so there's just a huge value put on education. Uh, and that has been really the fundamental reason why not just my family, but so many members of this community have excelled because they've just been extremely hardworking and committed to their education. Your husband. Yes. I don't know. What's question? Some, yeah, I mean, no, no real question. <laughs> okay, fi- my husband, I have, uh, I've known my husband for over 20 years. We've been married for 20, um, and he's in finance, and uh, he's a born and raised New Yorker. Your daughters? My daughters are 19. They attended, they attend your alma mater. Hey, right on. Yes. Yes, I've, I've learned all of that now. Uh, they just finished their freshman year, and uh, they are twins. Um, back in New York now for the summer, and they'll head back to L.A. in August. Are they going to work in the music industry? I don't know. Um, I don't know. We your shall fa- see. Your father. My father, uh, as I said, Kindest man you'll ever meet, most challenging boss and mentor, um, and just uh, exemplary in every way. I hope that I have 
his reputation when I am his age. Reservoir Media. First independent company to hopefully go public in the United States. Uh, and uh, probably other than my family, what I am most proud of. Well, thank you for doing this. Um, you know, I mentioned Donna and I mentioned Hoffman and, you know, it, it's the same thing for you where I I was, you know, I, before I, I don't even think I was technically on the NMPA board yet. And you still brought, not just you, but you brought people to see my show in New York and you've talked, you you would you email me about episodes of the podcast and you are such a presence to so many people again who aren't even signed to you and it means everything it means everything to writers in the community who are out there trying to put themselves out there and being vulnerable to have people who are you know like like Donna and Dave, you guys are also nurturing, and it means everything because it doesn't matter where where writers are in their career. We're all just being vulnerable for putting out music, and we need people to, you know, to be there for us when we're nervous. And it's such a welcoming. You're such a welcoming presence for so many people, and you know, obviously, all this success is you're obviously brilliant and you have an amazing family and and an amazing company, but you don't have to go out of your way to be that generous to other people. And you are, and I just appreciate you. Ross, that is very, very kind of you. And I really appreciate it. Um, I just, I think it's, uh, the most important part of how, how you can conduct yourself, and that's a choice. So one that we make every day, but I really appreciate you acknowledging it. I love it. Well, this is your first of hopefully many interviews with us, but uh, there you go. That's your episode. Thank you so much, Ross. Have a great weekend. Thanks for listening to this episode of And The Writer Is... If you want to hear music from this songwriter I just interviewed, be sure to check out our Spotify playlist or visit our website at andthewriteris.com. If you like what we're doing, please subscribe to us. You can also like us on Facebook and Twitter. And The Writer Is is produced by Joe London and published by Big Deal Music. A special thanks to David Silverstein from Mega House Music and Michael White. Until next time, this is Ross Golan. Hold up. 
What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.